The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as we continue our study into the apocalypse, which is really good news. It's good news about how the Lord works and steps into the events of human history and works out His plan um, for what He has designed. And so we've been studying that for quite a while now, and we're really about to hit a, we're, we're hitting a really cool section of it, and so I'm encouraged um, to be learning along with you as I've never preached through the book of Revelation, and the Lord has finally given me freedom to do that, and I've just been, just been blown away and incredibly encouraged by the things um, that I've, I've studied. And so it's interesting, you know, life is interesting um, when we think in terms of disappointment. Uh, disappointment is is really not a word that we uh, we like, right? It, it, there are a lot of things that disappoint us. Um, we get disappointed um, that when we find out news about our health, it can be very disappointing. We get disappointed when we think maybe we're working in business and a deal is going to work out and it falls through. We're disappointed. Um, we get disappointed when um, just all kinds of things. We feel like we may be left out. Um, people are gathering together, and maybe they didn't invite us, and we can be disappointed. Uh, just disappointed by so many different things. And the church um, in its infancy certainly was dealing with a lot of disappointment. The leadership of the church um, was definitely going through disappointment. They were dealing with um, false teaching within the church. And so we looked at that a lot as we went through those seven letters. So the you know John's writing this. He's receiving this revelation from God. Um, and, and there's a lot of like heresy in the church, and that's very disappointing to them. There's, there's a lot of uh, sin in the church, and by sin, I, I mean like it was being condoned, some of the things that shouldn't have been condoned, and, and teaching people to leave a lifestyle that they should have been leaving, and, and so like the church felt like, man, it, is it going to make it, <laughs> right? So it wasn't a time where you everywhere you went, you saw a church. It was a time where the church was coming out of the ground, and they, they probably they had secret symbols and things that, to communicate that they were an act, actually a church because it wasn't safe to be a church. It wasn't safe to be a part of the body of Christ. And so there's not churches everywhere like we've grown up, and we, we know about living here in America. It's like there's churches all of my life. There's been churches everywhere, all kinds of different churches. wasn't that way. The church was just starting. And they, the leadership worried, man, as, as Christ had entrusted to the apostles the year to go and, and lead this thing that I'm going to do, um, they, they were worried. Was it going to make it? Because even the government, um, the most powerful government at, at that time was anti-Christian and anti-church. And even to the point of, of uh, you know, killing them, um, persecuting them, making things hard for them. Their own people that they came out of, um, they, you know, they, they came out of a, they started as a Jewish movement because Jesus was a Jew and he came to the uh, nation of Israel. And, and so they started as Jews and the Jewish people as a nation rejected the church. And so you have all these things going on. It's a very um, difficult time for them to function. And so you may be here today and you may be like, man, I, I, I do get disappointed. Um, I get disappointed. I'm, you know, I find myself, I'm like, 
I got too much going on, man. I've got to, I'm trying to rebuild a car for, for the boys that they, they wrecked. I, I'm trying to help a guy on his basement. I, I've got all my own projects that I need to do. I, I always feel like I never get everything done at the church. And yeah, sometimes it's just disappointing. Now, the, the advantage that I have right now in this state of my life is I'm old enough that I realize that's just the way it is. You're not going to get it all done, right? Like you get as much as you can done and you keep on moving. And, and I'm, I'm even at the point where I realize in my life I'm going to die and there's going to be a lot of undone stuff, right? It's just the way it is. And so, it's, but it's helpful sometimes when I get disappointed about something and I get frustrated and it might cause me to back up a little bit to really just stop and pause for a moment and think about the grand scheme of things. See things through the lens of uh the God of the universe, the creator himself. And that's really what Revelation is about. It's about to come and help the church in a very discouraging time to see things as God sees them and, and to not lose hope, to be encouraged. And so as we, we break into this in chapter 5, we started last week, and just by way of a quick review, um, what, what we learned is we entered into the throne room and I set up how, you know, there's an outline to Revelation. We find it in chapter 1. I think it's verse, um, chapter 1, verse 19. He tells John, write therefore what you have seen. And what he just saw was the resurrected Christ. He saw a vision of the resurrected Christ. Then he says, and what uh, is now? And so that was the present. And he gets the seven letters to the churches. And as we study those seven letters, those were real churches, but it wasn't just for those churches. There were more than those seven churches. So it was a universal application that was for that, those churches and the problems that were going on there. And many scholars believe that each church represents a different period that was being prophesied about in church history, where the church would struggle with different things um, that are identified in these seven letters. And so that is what is now. And these letters are applicable to us. So we read these letters and we can find things that, that the Lord rebukes and that we need to avoid, and we can find things that He encourages and that we need to be chasing hard after as we follow Him. And then He says to him, and then what, write about what will take place later. So when we get to chapter 4, it starts in chapter 4, as He says, um, I believe He says, after this I looked. And so we see the after this. We have, see a time reference. And so we're shifting now in the outline to the things that are coming in the future. And we learned that we saw the, the, the God the Father's throne. Now we sang that, that song this morning about the, it was the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. They're three in one. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we, you, what's interesting is you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, yet it is a prominent teaching of the church. I believe in the Trinity. And so what is that? Well, it's, it's God in three distinct persons. And as we look here in chapters 4 and 5, we see all of the Godhead, okay? And so we first saw last week that God, John saw a vision of a being that he could not describe because no one can look at God the Father and, and live. But he did the best that he could, and he used the imagery of, 
um, a rainbow that encircled the throne of God. And all of these colors were coming out of it. And, and the dominant color from that rainbow was green. And it was symbolic of from that throne comes life. We saw that there was a, a ruby coming from it. And there was thunder and lightning, which is symbolic of the judgment of God. We learned that um, there were other thrones encircling that throne, and there were 24 of them to be specific, which is a number of completion, and there were these people that are called elders who sat on those thrones. Who are the elders? The elders is the church. That's us. Like, we are the body of Christ, and the term elder is a church, uh, a term that is used in the church, and so as the elders fall down in worship, that's the church falling down in worship. And so we saw that they are seated on the thrones, and we know that it was the church because they were dressed in white raiment, which Jesus told the church in Laodicea, buy from me white raiment. Um, they wore crowns to the church at Sardis, he said, or Smyrna, he says, you will receive the victor's crown. And so we know, like, man, that's the church. And so there, God the Father was in the, the middle. There was a sea around him that John described as a sea of crystal. He was reflecting the jasper, which is like a diamond, and so it was just the refracting the glory of God back to the elders who were encircled around him, the church, and this glory, this life emanating from him. Remember, Jesus said, I will make you a water, a wellspring of life. That's coming from God the Father through Jesus the Son. God the Holy Spirit lives in us. The elders are surrounding the throne. They're encircled in him. And, and, and they're refracting back the glory of God. Then there's this ruby red and the thunder and lightning that is symbolic of the judgment of God that is to come. And we learned that um, in all of this, we, again, we saw the cherubim who had the different faces, a face of a man, a lion, an eagle. What was the other one? An ox, thank you. Uh, and and they, they were all symbolic of the wild animal kingdom, oh, the lion. Um, the eagle was the flying animal kingdom. The ox was the domestic animals. And the man, um, obviously, was humanity and reason. And so all of these things represent, represent um, all of creation. And so all of this stuff is encircling the God, the Father, the throne of God. And they fall down in worship, in humble worship. And I taught you that um, what is going on there is God is leading, he's leading right now the world. All of the world is governed from this throne, and it is a throne of grace, okay? And we're going through a shift. And, and so when we think about disappointment, and the reason that we even experience disappointment is because the world is broken, if the world wasn't broken, we wouldn't need the word disappointment because we would never be disappointed about anything. It would just be right. And so when we experience disappointment, it tells us and it shows us that deep in our DNA, we know we are headed towards some kind of climactic event. Just having the word disappointment shows us that. And the climactic event is that all of creation awaits it, Okay. Like even the animal kingdom, though they cannot reason like we do, they are disappointed. So how do you know an animal is disappointed? Well, if you watch like National Geographic and you see the lion get the gazelle in his mouth, the gazelle is disappointed, right? <laughs> and so, 
And so like all of creation is groaning for things to be made right. And we know this from Romans chapter 8. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so we as believers who have received Christ as personal Savior, we've placed our faith and our trust not in our good works, but in all the work that He did on the cross. He is the Lamb of God, and we trust Him, then we are redeemed spiritually. But we, we eagerly wait with groaning for the redemption of our bodies. And so as Jesus is resurrected from the grave, all believers will be resurrected to life, okay? So spiritually, we are already resurrected. That's why we say if you don't know Jesus, if you've never been born again, you are dead in your sins. You meet Jesus, you're born again. You're, you're resurrected. You're raised spiritually. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now you are alive, and you are able, as God is sitting on his throne of grace and emanating that, that light, you are able to refract the glory of God back to him as he rules from his throne of grace today because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not based on what you do, but based on the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross of Calvary. And so we, but, but we still, even though, though we're ref, refracting the glory of God and reflecting it back to him, um, and I suppose he's doing the refracting, we're doing the reflecting, and, and, and it's, it's giving a picture to the world of what it means to walk in fellowship with, with the God of the universe. And so we're doing that spiritually right now. But we know that we're doing it in a world that it's difficult to do. And we get disappointed. Sometimes we get disappointed in ourselves. Sometimes we're disappointed in others. We're disappointed by an enemy that we face that is evil. We can see evil in the world. We're trying to convince people whom the evil is trying to convince that we're just a sham. We're trying to convince them that, no, we know the way, the truth, and the life. And we get disappointed when people can't see that. And we're struggling in the midst of it. And so we yearn on the inside of our physical bodies to be redeemed like our spirit is. Just like the gazelle knows something wrong, the believer knows something is still wrong, even though they have been redeemed and forgiven of their sins. And so, so that's what chapter 4 is all about. Now we get into chapter 5, which is the part 2 of the throne room scene. And this is very important to understand as we carry forward and we continue to go on through the book of Revelation and understanding. And so John is now beginning to see how the redemption of all of creation that is groaning takes place. And so I set up what we talked about last week in chapter 4. You, you kind of got a picture of that for those of you who were traveling and weren't able to be with us. So today we jump in chapter 5. And so he, after he sees all that I've just sort of summarized there, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. 
And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So John is sitting there and as he has that vision of God the Father on his throne encircled by all this stuff, he's able to see and what he puts in terms of in the hand, meaning that God the Father had a scroll and that scroll contained everything that would fix all that is wrong. And he sees it, man, and, and, and then this angelic voice, voice booms out and says, who is worthy? And no one steps up. Moses doesn't step up. King David, Job, like, uh, we could go through Elijah, Elisha, um, none of the prophets step up. We get to the New Testament. None of the New Testament apostles step up. John is an apostle. He doesn't step up. Who is worthy? No one steps up on the earth or below the earth. And John weeps bitterly because this disappointing thing that we all feel inside, it feels to him in this moment like it is certain and it can't be righted. He's looking and thinking about the church, and he knows the church is in trouble. He feels like it's in trouble. He doesn't know if it's going to make it or not. And, and, and no one steps forth to right the wrong, and that's sort of the place that he's in. And he says, I wept, and then all of a sudden, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Has um, the root is David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Now that's very important when we talk about the Trinity of God because sometimes people get confused about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is not a prophet. I know that we say, <clears throat> we say, well, I thought Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But in Jewish culture, when you are equated as the son of someone, it's just like being that, that person. You have all the rights of the Father when you say that you are the Son. That's why they accused Jesus as blasphemy, because he referred to himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man. Like, he is the, the one. And where does he come from in this vision? He comes from the center of the throne where God the Father had been sitting. He comes out, and he's announced as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John sees him, he appears as a lamb that is slain. And he, he goes on. He's standing in the center of that throne. And he's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The number seven in apocalyptic literature is always the number of perfection. And so when he says he has seven horns in the, uh, th this kind of literature, a horn always represents power. You took perfect power. He is all power, all powerful. Jesus has all power. He has the um, seven eyes, are um, the or the are the seven spirits of God, which it doesn't mean there are seven different spirits. It means it's the spirit in its perfection. It is the spirit of God. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all three the same, okay? But they are written about, and uh, so that we can kind of wrap our mind around how God's going to right all the wrongs that cause us to feel disappointed all the time. And so here they're all three together, and and we see the omni. Um, uh, omni of God, we see the um, omnipotence of God. He, he knows everything. He sees everything. This is why the Spirit 
And part of the role of the Spirit, if you study in John 16 and 17, it says that his role is to convict the world of sin. So we get these seven eyes that is perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, perfect sight. He is the perfect judge. He can look into our lives and he knows everything about us, everything that we've ever done and everything that we will do. And most importantly, he knows whether or not we have received him as personal Savior. And so you're convincing someone is not to convince your brother or sister sitting to the right or your left to you. It's not to convince that you're right with God is not to convince your spouse. It's not even to convince me, your pastor. <laughs> you need to be convincing God. And he knows perfectly whether or not you know him or not. And the way that you know him or not is based upon have you entered into a covenant relation based upon the work, the atoning work on the cross of Calvary, where you recognize that, that when Jesus spilled his blood, it was, it was God spilling his blood. It was God taking on all of our sin when he died on the cross of Calvary. He was entering into our stead, and we've placed our faith and our trust and our confidence in that and that alone. Nothing else. No good works, nothing else. Our good works flow out of our understanding of that. Our good works don't make us right with God. And so we look at that and we see that, and, and when he's able to judge accordingly as to whether or not every human being has. And then it says that he went, this lamb that looked as if he was slain, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders... That's the angelic cherubim and all of the church. They fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. Remember that harp because it's going to come back. I'm going to explain some things about that um, before we're finished today. Each one had a harp and they were holding. Look at what they're holding. They're holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. But when we pray, that prayer goes somewhere. And they sing a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every um, creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and and, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And I think it says here, just one more verse. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Okay, a lot going on there, right? This is seen, man, like John is going to this place of complete disappointment, thinking all is hopeless to shifting. And as we look at this, there are, are several things to understand. First of all, this seven-sealed scroll in the Father's hand. What in the world is that? This is very important in the book of Revelation. That seven-sealed scroll in the Father's hand is the deed to the earth and all of creation. Like that, That's it. Is that when he takes that, 
there is a shift taking place. The Roman law required a will to be sealed seven times. Now, this is not a will. This is a deed showing how something is going to take place um, and, and proving that it is. It doesn't contain the what because the what is all of creation. It contains the how. So next week when we turn to chapter 6, you will see that the seven seals start getting broken. And they are how the um, uh, implement, implementing the how of God's plan for the future when this all starts to take place. And so Jesus is referred to as a lion, but he's seen as a lamb that was slain. He's the lamb that was slain so that all of his... Um, the, the, all of his enemies, especially all of creation, but especially all of his enemies, recognize uh, them, his defeated him enemies, that he, how he defeated them on the cross of Calvary. And so Jesus is seen as slain to everyone so they know who they're dealing with. This is why the Jewish people miss Jesus as the Messiah the first time he came. It's because, it's partially why. It's because they were looking for a Messiah who would come and rule the earth, and Jesus came as a servant riding on a donkey as a lamb. And it's not what they were expecting, even though there were tons of prophecies that he would come, and all that they had received as God was speaking to all of humanity through this nation of Israel about how to connect with him, the lamb was so vitally important. And so what is happening when he takes that scroll is he is consummating his victory as a lion. That has not been consummated yet. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. So when Jesus returns, and when we get to the future, and he takes that deed, then what happens is what is going on spiritually and what is a spiritual kingdom begins to have tremendous impact, a tremendous impact on the entire physical universe, all that we can see. But now we live in a time where we're walking by faith and not by sight. And so it's, it's, what is happening is paradise that was lost is being regained. And remember, we're living during a time where God is ruling from a throne of grace. When, he, when Jesus takes hold of the deed, the throne is shifted and it becomes a throne of judgment. And so when that takes place, all of uh, creation erupts in praise because all of that all of those generation after generation after generation after generation of disappoint, disappointment is immediately righted in that moment. So yeah, that's good, man. What does that mean for me this week? <laughs> like that sounds like that's all coming off in the future. And when is that coming? I don't know. I don't know when it's coming. I know that Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse he was talking about when things like this would take place. He'd say, watch the seasons. And he said, when you see the birth pains beginning and things starting to get really wild. <laughs> They're really wild, right? He's like, you know the season is drawing near. And so I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Because the world could go on for another thousand years. And th this event, th this stuff already may be in place. I don't know. But he's telling us to be ready regardless. And so as we live our lives and we're dealing with um, how do we function in the world, how do we, how do we like raise our families, how do, we, how do we function at work, 
Um, how, do, how do we make sure that we're being good neighbors, that we're just being good? Like, how do we live and how do we live and reflect glory back to God who's ro- ruling from a throne of grace today? Well, here are the takeaways. First of all, we learn from this text, the lower we go, the higher we grow. The lower we go, the higher we grow. The lamb here comes from the word arnion, and it is interesting what's taking place. Um, It was designed to remind them. So if you want, just flip over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6. So during the, during the time when Israel was being led out of bondage, right? When they were, they were, ens- they were enslaved by Egypt. And in uh, Exodus chapter 12, God tells them uh, to do something very interesting, beginning in verse 3. He says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are, determined, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male or year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. That's four days when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for uh, you on on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay, this is very important. So this lamb that they were to have, like, these people grew up with this. You take the best lamb that you have in, a, in the flock that is a year old. Now, you imagine you're a dad, and you're in the, the sheep or goat business, and you take that little lamb, the best one, and you're raising your little kids. You bring that lamb into the house, and he lives with you and the family for four days. Now, that's about how long it takes for a, a dog to win you over, like about four minutes. And you got him for four days, this little lamb, and you take care of it, and on the 14th, it says, you do this on the 10th, and on the 14th, you cut its throat, and everybody eats it. And you're relying on the Lord, and he's like, you do this in haste, be ready to escape. 
This is all prophesying what Jesus would be as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he says, take, eat uh, uh, this. this. Take and eat from my body, drink from my blood. If you don't do that, you have no part with me. He's not literally saying that, that we are going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What he's saying is that he is the Passover Lamb. And when we are covered by his blood, then the Lord will pass over us. We are ready to make haste and flee, and that's why he's using this terminology. Now, here's something very important, is that we look at this and we see that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, God the Son leaves the throne that we've just described, this place of power, and he descends to the earth to become Jesus, the Lamb. And so we know that Jesus humbled himself to come as the Lamb. But we also see that because he humbled himself, he is able to return as the Lion. The Lamb is symbolic of uh, meekness and Jesus being a Savior. He rules from a throne of grace. The Lion is significant or symbolic of Jesus being King, and he rules from a throne of judgment. And so the Son went low... And the Father elevated him high. And, and so that tells us the lower you go, the higher you will grow. One of the most difficult things that people have to overcome in order to come into the kingdom of Christ is you've got to swallow your pride and bow down low before the cross. You've got to go low. And when you go low, then God elevates you by giving you the spirit to live inside of you. James, the brother of Jesus, describes it this way, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So we don't just humble ourselves one time and get into the kingdom. That is how we are introduced to Jesus as the lamb. But since we are already being ruled spiritually and we live by a different set of principles than the rest of the world that does not know the Lord, we are citizens of heaven. We not only know Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we recognize him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This day, when he seizes the scroll from the Father's hands, even unbelievers will recognize him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah as he is taking his rightful place on his throne in the future. But right now, we're supposed to already know how to do that, and so we have to learn how to um, the art of submission to the Lord. And so when the Lord calls us into obedience to something, instead of resisting it, we learn that, hey, man, if I will submit in obedience to this, I will go low, even I don't, uh, though I don't want to. The Lord will raise you up. He says, again, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so the lamb is submission, and the lion, when we submit, and we, we, t- we teach people this in discipleship, when we submit in obedience to the lamb of God, because we love him, then what happens is he dispenses power and authority as the lion into our lives. And we look at the world and we go, well, why is the church not having a greater impact on our culture right now? It's because nobody is accessing the power and authority of the lion of the tribe of Judah. They're all treating him like the slain lamb. So there's no power and authority. So you got all these people in all these churches that are just trying to kind of function like everybody else in the world. And the Lord is like, man, he's like looking down and he's saying one of the problems with the church is that they will have no power and authority. And the weaker the church gets, the closer we're getting to the return of Christ. And so for our church, what I'm going to commit to you, and I have committed to you, is we are a church that is all about not teaching you how to be good moms and dads. 
We're not going to try to teach you how to, how to be good citizens out in the community. What I'm going to teach you is that there is a line of the tribe of Judah. He is your king, and you need to bow your knee to him and worship him in spirit and truth. And you will be a good husband. You will be a good wife. You will be a good parent. Because you will begin to lead like Jesus, and the power and authority of the Lord will fall on your life. And that's what our church is going to be marked by, is not, not by my preaching. It's going to be marked by your power and authority. The greater you walk in power and authority, the greater transformation we will have on this community. And so as, as we recognize, man, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the slain lamb that takes away my sin, but he is also my lion. And as I humble myself before him, he will put his power and authority in me. Here's the second point. I promise the next three are fast. This is encouraging. We point each other to Jesus. Um, the apostle John was weeping. The Apostle John, man, is having a vision in heaven. The best friend of Jesus who knew him well. He was in the inner three, man. He's weeping because they're saying, who is worthy? And he's so overcome by anxiety in the moment, and he's weeping, and it required an elder to point him to Jesus. The church pointed him to Jesus. And so our takeaway from that is that's what we do for each other. That we point each other to Jesus, and we do that often, and that's why it's so important for us to walk together beyond just coming to church on a Sunday morning, because, man, part of my job is to teach you and equip you and fire you up with the sermon, and, and Sean does with the worship, but the truth of the matter is, is you're going to get your eyes off Jesus several times this week, and if you've got a brother or a sister that'll say, hey, look, you got your eyes off the, the lion right now then that helps you, man. That helps you to continue to walk in a place of submission and therefore increase your power and authority as you walk out uh, uh, your life here before the Lord and reflect His glory back to Him as He sits on His throne of grace today. And so John, his tears, what they do is they're representing the tears of all God's people throughout all time because these are the only tears we see in heaven. And, and, and he says, stop weeping. This is not the time for that. Look at the lion. And John sees him, and, and it's, there's power when we do that for each other. So don't, don't feel like you're a bad Christian if you get your eyes off of Jesus. You will. John did. But you're, risk, you're playing a very risky game if you're trying to live your life apart from other believers who are walking in power and authority. Just being a part of a church will not help you in this. You've got to be around some believers who are walking in power and authority. And men, like, I have people that do this for me in my life. And what's so great about discipleship, walking this out, now we got more disciple makers and they know how to point people to Jesus. And so sometimes our discipleship leaders may be the very ones that help me to look at Jesus and realize I've got my eyes off Jesus right now. And, and then I do that for them. They do that for me. And as we walk through this life, man, we get strength and we get courage and we start conquering territory for the kingdom of Christ. Here's the third takeaway. Our prayers are in God's presence. Now, that should motivate us. I already hit on that a little bit, but you saw that the prayers, like when I pray, when I pray, I'm not meditating. I'm not getting in my prayer closet and going, oh, I'm set, like, Jesus help me to be a nice, patient God. No, I literally believe that when I talk to God, 
My prayers are ascending before that throne who governs the entire universe. And he is helping me by sending back the power and authority necessary for me to walk out in submission to the obedience that he's calling me to and to pour the power and authority on my life to help me go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, I see my prayers that way. And so I'm motivated to pray. If you see your prayers as some kind of, as some kind of religious duty that you just got to do because good Christian uh, boys and girls pray, so you got to pray, and all you're doing is praying, Our Father which art in heaven, you're just reciting the Lord's Prayer, and you never, do talking, you never are talking to the Lord about who you are and who He is and what He wants for your life and how you understand the Word that you're reading then you're never going to, like, it's like, that's not, like, it's never going to work, man. You got you to gotta talk to the Lord, and he wants to talk to you. And as you pray those prayers, man, they are coming up before him, and they are in his presence, and something really cool happens to them here in a moment. And it's important for us to pray, and we should be consumed with prayer, meaning that we are just people of prayer all the time. What does that mean? Okay, so I have prayer that Usually in the morning, I spend time with the Lord and I pray. And I, I work through a whiteboard of stuff, of things and people I'm praying for. I pray for you guys, okay? I've got y'all listed out, and I pray for different families on different days of the week. But then I leave my study sometimes, and I go and I'm doing things. I'm going, and I may be doing things that are, I'm having lunch with people, or I may be counseling with people, or I may just be going and having fun and doing some recreation. I'm always talking to the Lord. I'm always talking to the Lord. I'm always talking to the Lord about what's going to come out of my mouth. I'm always talking to the Lord about how I'm treating people. I'm always talking to the Lord about when I, I know that I do something that I shouldn't do, when I lose uh, control of my temper and I, like, I feel like I want a bolt of lightning to come out of the sky on a person. I talk to the Lord about that. It's like, Lord, like, get a hold of me. okay? And he does. okay? And those prayers, man, they're up before the Lord. Here's, and and, and I, I talk to the Lord about people coming to know him because only Jesus can reverse the curse. Like, that's what this is teaching us. Who is worthy? Muhammad's not worthy. You didn't see anybody else listed. You don't see this place in your Bible. The only person who is worthy to come and open the scroll, which is the deed to the planet, is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is slain before the foundation of the world. So there's no other way to God. You say, well, don't all roads lead to the Lord? No, not according to Jesus. There's one road. There's one way. That's why he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody can come to the Father unless you come through me. Because there's only one being who left all of that splendor and glory and humbled himself and became one of us, then died on the cross of Calvary without deserving the death because he never sinned, then was in the heart of the earth for three days, and by the power of God the Father that he never left his throne, he just came to the planet encapsulated in flesh, and as his flesh lay dead there in the tomb for three days, God the Father sent um, the... Uh, awakening of the spirit came into him he rose from the dead he interacted with the disciples and three days later uh, he rose from the dead and ascended to the father after he interacted with them and taught them and and instructed them and so we see that now he sits on his throne and what does he do on the day of Pentecost he comes back again you see Jesus really never left the planet the only time he was really like he never left because the 40 days in between the resurrection and Pentecost, he was interacting with the disciples. And at Pentecost, 
What did he do? The Holy Spirit came. Who's the Holy Spirit? God the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's in me. He's in you. That's why you're the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so he is here, and only he can reverse the curse. And so we're looking at how can my friends come to a place to where they understand this this way? we got to ask Jesus to save them because only he can save them. It's not your job to talk people into believing the truth of Christianity. It's your job to just tell people about the truth of Christianity. Whether they believe or not is on them. And the way we see them come into the kingdom is when we're talking to the Father about them. Only Jesus suffered death and didn't deserve it, and so only he can reverse the curse. And here's the big idea. Jesus will take back what is right, rightfully his. He's, he's going to take it back. And so here's the deal. Watch this. There, according, th- th- this is not original with me. Donald Barnhouse, um, a theologian, um, wrote this. There are four things currently out of place in the universe. The first thing is the church. The church should be in heaven. The second thing is Israel. Israel should be experiencing peace and have complete possession of the promised land. The third thing is Satan. He should be in the lake of fire. And the fourth thing is Christ should be reigning from his throne. Like physically, like he should be reigning over the world. Right now, the prince like, of, of darkness is the ruler of the earth. The Scripture teaches that. But one day, when Jesus takes a hold of that scroll, all of these anomalies get righted. And before Jesus breaks the seals in chapter 6, a new song is sang in heaven. And the harps that I referred to earlier are always symbolic of prophecy. When Saul was told he was going to be anointed as king and he's coming home, he says, you're going to be met by some prophets who are carrying harps and flutes and lyres. And when they come upon you, you are going to start prophesying. And so the harps symbolize all prophecy. The bowls of incense symbolize all of the prayers. And so the prayers that have been prayed since the beginning of time to this God that we are describing generational prayers, all of our prayers, all the prophets ever prophesied and all the prayers ever prayed are finally fulfilled. Therefore, there is a new song that is sang in heaven. Like that song hadn't been sang yet. And so when we say all of creation is waiting and groaning and moving toward this climactic event, it is the climactic event of when Jesus takes a hold of the scroll from the Father's hand and he reclaims what is rightfully his, the world. And people from every tribe, language, and culture, and nation, they will be saved. And the reason they will start singing is because the blood of Christ that was slain before the foundation of the world has purchased them from the slave market of sin. That's why in the Old Testament, when we look at Israel and they're in bondage and slavery in Egypt, it's a picture of all of humanity that's in bondage and slavery to sin. And the only way out is to have the blood. And when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. Be ready, he says, to make haste. Have your belt tucked and your loins tucked and your sandals on, man, so that when that time comes, you are ready to move. Now, some people, when you start talking about the second coming of Christ, they get nervous and, like, worried. Man, I start talking about it and thinking about it, I just get excited. There's no need to be worried or anxious. And we're gonna we're about to open. Man, when we start cracking these seals open, it's gonna be like, whoa. But for us, 
We have nothing to worry about. You say, why not? Because according to this, the church, the elders are encircling the throne of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what's encouraging to me in all of this is that John sees this when the church is tiny and struggling. The Lord lets him say, hey, bro, no need to worry. I got this. The world is mine, and according to my timetable, I will take it back and put it back to the place that I originally created it. And all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? So I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to take communion today. You have the, the, the stuff in front of you there and the seat in front of you. But what I want to encourage you to do is as you just sit with the Lord for a moment and, and like just think, if there's something disappointing you, if you walked in today and you were a little disappointed, like just get a picture of this scene that I just taught you about. And like let the Lord move you from that place and recognize, man, that we are more than conquerors and all that is necessary for us to achieve the things the Lord wants us to do are available. And so if you don't know the Lord, like you never met him, you're like, man, I, I want to like know the Lord like you're talking about. It's a simple confession of your, your giving your life to him. You believe that Jesus was, in fact, God and he died in your stead. You ask him to forgive you and you make him the Lord of your life. And you humble yourself before that. And you call upon the name of the Lord. And you don't need me to come pray over you. What you need is to say yes to God the Holy Spirit who's inviting you in to the kingdom of Christ. I'm going to pray and then we'll just sort of let Sean lead us and you can partake of the communion. I'm going to ask you to remain seated just for until Sean asks you to stand. Um, and, and, and have some time of reflection as you partake of that communion. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the, the revelation of John. It's good news, Lord. And we just see more and more the confirmation uh, of the gospel and, and how you have made a way for us to know you. I thank you for this, peop this group of people, Lord, that are here today for, for this for this community that we call OPCC. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in power and authority so that we can see people's lives change and you can reverse the curse in people besides just us. But we're catalysts, Lord, for that movement. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.